Please turn in your New Testaments now to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Luke 19, 28 through 44. Every time I drive south of town on US 49, I am just bugged. In fact, I'm not only bugged, I'm, I'm almost, my blood pressure rises and I get a little bit angry because I think these people should know better than this, and it never fails. I've never driven down there in the last five years that, that this thing has not bothered me. And may, maybe you've seen the same thing, and maybe you were bothered too. Is a, there's a huge sign, there's a billboard on 49 South, and I'm sure that it was put up by some well-meaning church trying to give some positive uh, message about Jesus, but the message is so off. It's just wrong. But I'll tell you something about that sign. That sign would have been perfect to put up on the very path, cloak-paved path, palm-branch-paved path that Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem that day. They could have put a billboard along the parade route of Palm Sunday and it would have perfectly reflected exactly what those people were doing. The sign says, y'all are probably... If you live here wondering, what is he talking about? You're going to have a wreck looking for it next time you're down there. The sign says, Jesus Christ, the great solver of problems. You're probably going, what's wrong with that? i got problems and I love Jesus. Well, on one level that's true. On one level we certainly bring our problems to Jesus. I think our number one problem is a sin problem between us and the Holy God that only Jesus can solve. And uh, certainly we are weak and He is strong. Certainly we need Jesus. So it's not that kind of angle that I'm criticizing here. The problem is, if that's all Jesus is, a problem solver, that's, that's not who Jesus is. I mean, basically, if that's what that means, that's what we call heresy. I mean, is that why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that day to solve a problem? To solve a few personal problems of some Jewish people? To solve a political problem? No. Some people simply want what Jesus can give more than they want Jesus. I'm that person from time to time, I assure you. Let's read our text, Luke 19, 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, Bethpage, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden untie it and bring it here. No one had ever ridden it. It's fit for the king, the king of kings. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Don't you love this? And so those who were sent ahead found it just as they told him. And when they were untying the colt, the owners asked, why are you untying the colt? Can we say my colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they give this colt. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down 
the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop, in other words. I tell you, verse 40, he replied, If they were to keep quiet, the stones would cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said through tears, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I'd like for you to write this sentence down and ponder it later. It's what I'd like to say from this text. When people cheer for a false Jesus, the real Jesus weeps. Let me say that again. When people cheer for a false Jesus, the real Jesus weeps. So I'd like to, to look at the crowd and to look at Palm Sunday and to see this idea of, of them cheering for a false Jesus, because that is exactly what is happening here in the triumphal entry. Uh, what they wanted was a Savior who could solve the problem of the Romans. For quite some time, Rome, who was you know, the, the largest, most powerful empire in the world at that time, Rome had conquered Israel. Rome was an occupying force. No one could break the yoke and the tyranny of Rome and taxes were paid and all these other things. And they just longed to get rid of the Romans. They longed to have their own king sit on David's throne again. And they wanted Jesus to be that person. And, you know, they, they had seen a lot. And a lot of news had spread about Jesus, about Him healing people, about Him calming the sea, feeding folks with, two, with a small lunch. And, and just before the triumphal entry was the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Now that is power. He's got the power. That's who we're going to trust in. And we're about to have our problem fixed. Just in case you didn't know, this was not the first triumphal entry. There was another one that happened 165 years before this one. The one that happened 165 years before this one had palm branches. There was, a, there was someone who rode into town and they put their cloaks on the ground, made a highway of their, their coats. They said, Hosanna. They said, Psalm 118. They quoted and sang to him as well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. His name was Judas Maccabeus. He was one of the, of the family called the Maccabees. And at that time, it was not Rome that, that ruled Israel. It was Syria. And Syria was an 
awful occupying force, Antiochus Epiphanes. Doesn't that sound like an evil person? Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the high altar in Jerusalem, and the Jews went nuts. And the Maccabee family basically formed a resistance, and they militarily kicked the Syrians out. And so here he comes. Here he comes, right into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Judas Maccabeus! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that man was a problem solver. That man knew how to take care of business and do what needed to be done. This is also what they shouted at Jesus. Come be our problem solver. Come get rid of the Romans and reestablish the throne of David. But here's the problem. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is, not, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for a much bigger conquest than Rome. He is coming to bring the kingdom of God Almighty to them. He is the, the Messiah long prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the one who would break into history and He has in the fullness of time and erase the line between sinful men and holy God and bring people into the very presence of God in relationship with God and union with God. He will bring peace. In fact, the, the theme that you read the most in this passage, if you look at it later, is peace, peace, peace. And he wants to spread this kingdom from Jerusalem as he comes in to the entire world. They wanted to punish the Romans. He wanted to forgive them and connect with them. They wanted Jerusalem. He wanted them to have all things forever and an inheritance of God Almighty and nothing ever withheld from them ever again. God's presence, God's love, God's power, and the inheritance that would never fade away. But there was a visual difference between Judas Maccabeus and Jesus Christ. Now they were both Jewish, so that wasn't the visual difference. You know what the difference was? Of course, that's 162 years and, and all the, you know, it's actually written in, in, in the Apocrypha, this intertestamental history. It had been taught, of course, in the big celebration of the Jews all during this time. So everybody knew about Judas Maccabeus, but the difference wasn't how they looked. The difference was the animal they rode into town on. Judas Maccabeus rode in on an incredibly strong and tall stallion. I mean, just a rippling with muscles, snorting, ready to eat the Syrians alive, war horse. And he had just eaten the Syrians alive. He was in full military regalia as he came in as a symbol of power and conquest over the Syrians. Not Jesus. No, not Jesus. When Jesus said, go ahead and I want you to bring this colt, it wasn't the colt of a horse, was it? The symbol of war. What was it? That was not rhetorical. Or it was. I'm not, I'm, whatever I'm trying to say, I want you to answer. <laughs> it was, thank you. It was, a, it was a donkey. A donkey. And a donkey is a symbol of peace. And so Jesus rode in on a donkey as the symbol of peace. Now, 
Very easy to misunderstand Jesus bringing peace to Jerusalem. Some people look at this and they say, oh, Jesus is kind of like an ambassador who's coming in to try to negotiate a peace and try to work out some peace between God and man and maybe it'll work. That is not the picture at all. No, no, this is a picture of someone who is sitting on a donkey because he is in charge because he doesn't have to be at war, because his plans are the plans, and this is the plan of God. Jesus predicted, we're going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest, crucified by the Gentiles, all of this. And Jesus rides in on this symbol of peace, and he is saying, I've got the real peace to give you. I'm in charge, not the Romans. If you want real peace, look to me. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is the prophecy about the triumphal entry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Listen to these words. Hundreds of years before. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Not just a problem to be solved. Having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Even the cult of a donkey. So the, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who has all power, is prophesied to come in looking like he is in charge, not looking like he's trying to take charge. Now we kind of get this. Because in our own political system, we have something kind of similar to this. I want you to think about after the election of a president, we have this thing called an inauguration. This is kind of like Jesus' inauguration, if you will, coming into Jerusalem to, for that week that will change the world to do what is necessary. When we have an inauguration, they start out, you know, they build all that stuff on the steps of the Capitol, beautiful scaffolding, and, and there's the speech, and there's the swearing-in ceremony. And after, after the new president, or the, the old president re-elected, whichever is the case, is sworn in, what do they do next? They, they go down a certain street, which is called Pennsylvania Avenue, and they go from the Capitol where they're sworn in to the White House, and then they get there, I don't know what they do, and then they party through the night. But um, when they go down Pennsylvania Avenue, the President of the United States in a, is in a tank, right? With the lid down. He's in a symbol of power like a war horse. No! The President of the United States doesn't have to ride in a tank! He's in charge of the free world! When he's not walking, what does he ride in? An open limousine. Let me tell you something. If you're at war, do you take an open limousine onto a battlefield? Uh Uh-uh. Why does the President of the United States ride in an open limousine? Because there is more security for that human being at that moment than any other. He's in charge. He's not worried. He he is on the the combined military might and know-how of the United States. He is saying... It is at peace, I am in charge, and I am who I am. How much more Jesus Christ, the second person of God, the only superpower in Jerusalem that day wasn't the Romans. The true superpower in Jerusalem that day was Jesus Christ, the second person of God coming into this world to accomplish salvation for us. And the Roman stuff is piddly, as piddly as the Syrian stuff. He's the only superpower, and here's the deal. I want you to see Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a horse. Nothing can stop him from accomplishing the Father's will. 
Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop. Jesus says, look, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. It's going to happen. The rocks are going to say Hosanna if they don't because I am the king. I am the superpower. So when people cheer for a false Jesus, they just wanted Jesus the great problem solver. Jesus the Roman kicker. When that happens, the real Jesus weeps. You know, you read the different accounts of the triumphal entry and you get to Luke's account and it's a party. You're like, oh, this is great. And children away from palm branches kind of like they were earlier and everybody's shouting Hosanna and all these. And you start collating all the things in the different Gospels that they say. I mean, this is an incredible moment of joy. What they think is going to be a realization of, of, of power And Jesus stops the parade. And he's just burst into tears. The guy in the middle of his own parade is just weeping bitterly. And I'm talking about that Middle Eastern kind of weeping. I'm not talking about that Southern man kind of tear down the cheek kind of weeping that you don't want to weep. I'm talking about this "Ah," kind of weeping. I wish we could learn that. I won't do that noise again. But I, I wish we kind of learned down here in the south how to do that Middle Eastern kind of get it out, you know? That's the kind of weeping Jesus was doing in the middle of His parade. Because Jesus knew that the people wanted a wrong kind of Savior. They didn't didn't want the peace that He was bringing. And He knew that they wanted the, the, uh, the power of the sword to vanquish the Romans. He knew that. To fix their problem. And he knows the kind of king that they want to put their trust in. And the promised Messiah is in their midst about to transact the salvation that has been so long awaited and the presence of God. You know when when the exiles came back from Babylon and the Babylonians, if you may remember, tore the temple down? And they rebuilt, Solomon's temple was torn to the ground. They rebuilt the temple. And it says there, when they rebuilt the temple, that there were people that cried when they rebuilt the temple because some of those people remembered the old one. And the old one was so much bigger and so much more lavish than the new one. But do you know the main difference between Solomon's temple and the one they rebuilt? Big difference. The big difference is the Shekinah glory of God the the presence of God, the name of God that dwelt in the midst of the temple never came back to the second temple. Y'all didn't know that, did you? They kept doing all the sacrifice. The the glory of God, the presence of God, like in the tabernacle in the front, was not there. And this was why, one of the reasons the Messiah was so important because it was prophesied and promised that the presence of the Lord would come back to Jerusalem. Jesus is weeping because He's here. And they just want a problem solver. The second person of God, the Redeemer, is here and He weeps. Let me tell you something. If if, if our notion of Jesus Christ is the great solver of problems, and that's really who we think He is, on Sunday... 
when you are cheering for Jesus, when you're looking to Him to fix your problems, by Friday, if they're not fixed, you're going to say, I'm done with Him. Crucify Him. And there are lots of people that fall away from Christ. And the prim- one of the primary reasons is they just wanted a fixer rather than a Savior. And when Jesus didn't come through with everything they wanted, and, and things didn't quite go the way they wanted, or they're still lonely, or they're still this or that, they say, you know what, enough of this. Because my problems still aren't fixed, and I think I'll try somebody else. Crucify Him. As Jesus wept, Jesus could see into the future, and what He saw just only made His weeping that much more vehement. Look at verse 41 of our text. Basically, it's similar to what Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter chopped off the ear of a Roman, of a Jewish um, soldier. And Peter, uh, Jesus told Peter, look, if you live by the sword, if you try to live by power, you're going to die by it. It's not going to work. And that's similar to what Jesus is saying here. Verse 41, as they approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wailed over it. And he said, listen to these words, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you true peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And he looks into the future. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and go in from every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. What is Jesus saying about himself? He's God. He is the presence of the Lord coming back to Jerusalem. Sure enough, 40 years from that prophecy, A.D. 70, Titus, the emperor of Rome, sent his legions and they surrounded Jerusalem and they built embankments or earthen ramps and they finally went over the walls and Jesus is weeping when he can see bodies in the street. Young and old of people who just wanted to pull levers for themselves. Just wanted a little power to make their lives a little better. Instead of wanting a relationship with the one true and living God. And Jesus through tears says they missed the day of God's visitation. Now look. I, you, we are very often like those people in Jerusalem. Please do not take the fact that I'm expounding the Scriptures to you, that I understand all things, and I never want things from Jesus rather than Jesus. I think there's a struggle that we have deep in our souls, particularly as Americans, because there's so many things for us to want and so many things to, uh, to get. Um, we want Jesus to make us feel better about ourselves. We want Jesus to fix not only us, we want Jesus to fix select people in our lives in a hurry. Some people want Jesus to put a particular political party in power so American can be fixed. And that's really what they want from Jesus. And a hundred other fixes. We want what Jesus can bring more than wanting 
Jesus. Now, I learned many years ago that there's two types of needs. You probably learned this too. There are what are called felt needs, and there are what are called real needs. Do you all know the difference between those? Felt needs are just the ones you really want. You feel them. They are the needs you have right now. Real needs are different from just something you feel. They're the things you actually need as human beings way deep in your soul and, and for your body and, and the real, real needs. Uh, an, a, an acute little example would be this. I, I started thinking, what, how can I illustrate this? A felt need would be a craving for chocolate. Got to have it now or hot donuts now. You like that sign? A real need would be for food to survive. Look, we need food. That's a real need. We don't necessarily need hot donuts now. That's a felt need. Uh, but, but food is a real need. A felt need is for Jesus to make me feel better about myself now. A real need is forgiveness from Jesus for me. And the peace that comes through that forgiveness and humility and looking to Him and submitting myself to His truth and, uh, and, and being with Him and having that intimacy restored with Him. And you know the strangest thing happens? I actually feel better by myself when that happens. The good news to you and to me this morning as, as we, we look at this strange passage of the party and Jesus crying in the middle of His own party, the good news this morning is that as we kind of line the streets of Jerusalem in our minds, as we are in Holy Week, kind of looking afresh at who Jesus really is, who He is to us personally, who He is to His church, that we need to understand He is who He says He is. He is the second person of God. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah. He is the one who carried out the plan to perfection. He is the one that brings a salvation that can never be taken away and a kingdom that can never be shaken. And the one who will give us all things and not withhold any good thing from those who walk with Him. He is the one, as you bring the weaknesses and struggles of your life and as I bring the fears and struggles of my life, I promise you this, He is the one who will meet every single one of your real needs. He'll meet them all with His presence and His peace and His working in our lives. And He will invite us in the midst of this, this wonderful union with Him to, to have a part in showing other people where real peace is. So as we go to the table, I want to say this to you. Don't miss Him. Don't reject Jesus because you're looking for a fixer. Jesus Christ is not, quote, the great solver of all problems. He's Savior and King. Okay, if you've been here, I like to like for us to like yell out loud, okay? So we're about to do this. Get ready. You ready? Jesus is Savior. I'm going to say it, then you say it after me. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That was okay. Hosanna to the Son of David. That's Psalm 118. It's about the Messiah coming. That's who Jesus was. Hosanna means save now. That's what He did. But Jesus is not just Savior when He wrote and He was King. And that's why we read in this passage, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Very good. Now let me close by taking you to the book of Revelation so that as we go to this table, you will be assured that Jesus really does have all authority and power. He really is the Savior of people who come to Him, and He really will care for you and meet every real need. It is Revelation 5, 9, and following. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, get it in your head, and 10,000 times 10,000, they, this multitude of angels, encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature on the earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, singing these words to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You are who You said You were. And even now, we can turn to You. If you've never put your trust in what Christ has done on the cross for you, if you're still trying to work out your own salvation, deal with your own sin apart from Him doing it all for you and offering it to you as a sheer gift. If you've been looking for a fixer, you're bitter and angry, you're empty, you've never been able to succeed and you see it. You see that God has come so that you can have Him and He can have you and you want that. You just pray with me, Lord, I see it and I turn from everything that I've called Christianity. I turn from everything that I've called religion and I put my trust, Jesus, in what you have done. My Messiah, Savior, the Son of God, thank you that even now you've come into my life. Oh, Lord, there are many of us that have walked with you, even this week, how I personally have struggled with other things more important than you and other saviors. Oh Lord, we pray that even during this time of communion, you would sweetly turn our focus to the real Jesus. And that in that intimacy and in that faith, Lord, you would give us a sense of resting in who you are, what you've done, and who you will be for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.